All right, good morning. Why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. And while you're doing that, uh, wasn't last week just a special time for us? I know uh, in, our, in our group this week, we were talking about just how full our hearts were after you know, spending time with baptism, uh, as we had three people profess their faith uh, to us, and you know, having that relationship with them where they're saying, hey, this is what I stand for, and I'm following Jesus for the rest of my life, no matter the cost. And as a church, we say, hey, we support you in that, and we're going to hold you accountable for that. Uh, taking communion together, just really focusing on the unity with, between us and Christ and us as the church, spending time in fellowship afterwards. Uh, man, it's just, it's a spe- it was a special day. And the good news is, we're here this morning. And so we've got more special days to come. So as we go into John chapter 6, one thing that I would point out is we are entering into a section of this gospel that is incredibly rich in theological significance. And that's a big word, theological, but basically whenever you think about who God is and how He works in the world to accomplish His purpose, this is very rich with significance in that regard. Specifically, when we're looking at the topic of another long word, big word, fancy word, soteriology, which is the study of salvation. So what we're looking at for the next couple weeks is, what does Scripture say about us, about how man is saved? And what does it say about who the God is that saves us, and how that happens, and who Christ is? And let's not forget, right, John writes all of these things, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you would have everlasting life. John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, go read it, memorize it. So, for new believers, I want you to focus in this morning, and I want you to learn about what's happened how did you get to where you are right now, where you, fall, you follow Jesus Christ, where you have said, I will follow Jesus no matter the cost? Because this is something that you need to learn. And as you do, I was telling our new members class this morning, as you learn more about the gospel, you grow deeper and deeper in it, and it changes you more. That's the thing, like, we, when we first come to Christ, like, there's, there is a change that happens, and we notice it in our hearts, in our minds. We start thinking differently because the Holy Spirit is empowering us to think differently. But the more you learn about it, the more you study it, you grow in your humility, you grow in your faithfulness, you grow in your heart of worship towards God. And so that's why, for those of you who are mature in the faith, not just new believers, but for those of you who have have been in the faith for some time, this is for you too. I want you to realize what happened. And it will change your heart. You will grow in your, your appreciation and your worship towards the God who saved you. For those who have not trusted in Jesus, I would just say, look to see what happened. 
Look to see what Jesus is offering. Get past the physical. I know there's a lot of different reasons why you're here this morning. Somebody may have asked you to come, so you're here. You may have come for the coffee and the muffins. You may have come because you've got friends here. You enjoy the, the fellowship that you, you experience when you come here. I would say get past all of that right now and look at Jesus. Because that's why John wants you to read this. John says, I'm writing this so you don't see the physical. You don't see what he offers, but you see him and who he is, that you would behold his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And if you're like me, this morning I hope, my prayer as I was studying this week, I need rest. I'm weary. I'm tired. I need encouragement. And I hope that if that's where you are, if you're alongside me this morning, that that this would provide that to you. So let's not forget what all has happened as we lead up to this theological discussion. You know, we saw a couple weeks ago where Jesus fed the 5,000, right? That was 5,000 men. You add in the women and children, and you're probably looking at 18 to 20,000 people. And he fed them to their fill with five loaves. And we're not talking about the honey wheat bread that I buy. We're talking about the barley loaves that are the cheap. They were for the poor. We're talking about loaves about this big and two fish. And we're not talking about trophy-sized bass. We're not talking about the ones you hold out farther away when you take the picture so they look bigger. We're talking about fish about, probably about the size of your, your hand. And he fed 20,000 people with that and had leftovers. After seeing... What, they, what this man Jesus did for them, that, that crowd tried to take him by force to make him their king. He, this is our Messiah. This is who we want. The guy who's going to provide our every need. Let's make him our king. But Jesus didn't allow that. He withdrew from the crowd. Mark's gospel would say that, that Jesus immediately after told his disciples, get in the boat and go ahead of me. And he withdrew from the crowd and he went up to the mountain and prayed. We saw last week that, that Jesus, while the, the disciples are out in the storm, they're in the dark, Jesus performs another miracle, but not for the whole world to see, but for his disciples, right? He walked on water and he goes into the dark, into the storm and finds them and meets them where they are. And then he performed other miracles too, right? When he gets in the boat, he calms the storm. And then at the very end of our passage last week, we saw that as soon as he got in the boat, immediately they were to the other side. And that's where they are. He revealed his glory to his disciples. So this morning, let's see the glory of our Christ once again. I've identified four major sections in our passage of study. We're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. First, we're going to see the crowd's search for bread. Then we're going to see working and believing for bread. And then Jesus will reveal the true giver of the true bread. And then we will see the great bread of life. 
So first, let's look at verses 22 through 26. The crowd searched for bread. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. This section primarily gives us the setting. This is what's going on as Jesus begins to have this dialogue with the crowd. But it also gives us some insight into the mindset of that crowd. Here we are, 24 hours later after Jesus has just fed them. And what state do we find them in? They're hungry. It's time to eat again. So naturally, what are they going to do? They're going to go find the guy that fed them last time. Hey, this guy fed us yesterday. Let's go find him. And then they start to think. And they realize, you know, there was only one boat on the shore. And we saw the disciples get in that boat. And they left. But Jesus didn't go with him. But Jesus isn't here. So what's going on? John gives us more description in saying that other boats from Tiberias had come. Now, they may have come for a number of reasons. It's possible that they heard of this guy handing out food, so they wanted to eat too, so that they, hey, they're coming to the party. It's possible that they were water taxis, and they, hey, they see a business opportunity here. There's a bunch of people gathered up on the shore. Hey, we can get paid to deliver them. They could have been boats that, remember there was a storm the night before? Jesus walked out on the water. Maybe they were boats that had taken shelter. Whatever the reason is, John includes this little detail so that we understand how the people get to Jesus. So there's all these boats that had come in, and the people start looking. They spent some time looking for Jesus, and they said, okay, he's not here. Let's get into the boats, and let's go find him. And after some time, they find him. They find Jesus, and naturally they ask him the question that they had all been wondering. When did you come here? How did you get here? We saw what happened. You told the disciples to get in the boat and go. They left, and you were still with us, but then somehow you got here. There was no other boat. The significance in this section comes in Jesus' response to the crowd. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, why is that response significant? Well, we know how Jesus got there, right? And we, we got to read that last week. He walked on water, he got in the boat, and then he went over there with his disciples. But why didn't Jesus tell them that? Remember what happened last time? He performed a miracle. What did they try to do? They tried to make him king by force. And he went down with that. 
So he, didn't, he does not reveal this glorious miracle that he performed last night to them either. He doesn't entrust himself to them. Remember, at the very end of chapter 2, right before we go into that dialogue, that famous discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus, you have people who were coming to Jesus and they, they believed in him, but he did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knows what is in man. And he knows what's on their hearts. He knows why they're there. And that's the case here. These people have come to Jesus, but Jesus knows what's in man. He knows the purpose. He knows why they're there. And he calls them out on it. What does he say? You're not looking for me. You're not even look, You're not like the evil and adulterous nation that looks for a sign. You're coming to me because it's time to eat again. And you want food. That's why you're here. You came all this way because you want bread. The crowd was searching not for Jesus. They were searching for their next meal. Jesus was a meal ticket. This crowd was so blind to their superficial desire for food and a miracle worker who could entertain them that they've missed out completely on the greater purpose in which Jesus was putting his power on display. He wasn't just doing it to feed people. He was doing it to reveal his identity. Hey, I am the Son of God, and I'm here. And they couldn't get past the food. One commentator wrote, they were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. They weren't moved by the Spirit, but by their flesh. I wonder if this could apply to us too. I mean, how often do we allow ourselves to be moved by our flesh rather than the Spirit? This morning, when that alarm went off for me to get up, I had to get up extra early this morning. I was the first one here. (laughs) That might be the first and only time I'll ever get to say that. But I had to get up early. I'll tell you, I was not moved by the Spirit out of that bed. What about at work? Or at school? When you're feeling all this pressure from the teacher, or the teacher, y'all's personalities don't get along, how do you respond? Are Are you being moved by the flesh or by the Spirit? What about when you're talking to your spouse on whose turn it is to change the diaper or wash the dishes? Is it your flesh or is it your spirit? This week, I'm making a point for me as an application of this to try to think about what am I doing right now? And am I being moved by the spirit or by the flesh? By the spirit or by the flesh? It's going to be something I'm going to try to drill into my mind this week to consider You know, this is something we've seen quite frequently in the past couple weeks where we have people who keep coming to Jesus. Large crowds. They're following Him. But they're only coming to Him for what they can gain. They're not coming to Him because He's Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. They're just trying to get something out of it. 
And we've been faced with that same question every week, it seems like. Are we doing the same thing? And this is a question worth considering because the answer, how you answer that question reveals something about your heart. Because what we see here is we have people who are not true followers of Christ. And they're only coming to Jesus for what they can get from him. So why are you pursuing Christ? Is it for your gain? Are you looking for an easier life? Are you following Him because you've you've determined I'm going to follow Him no matter the cost? No matter what it costs me. These people weren't looking for Jesus at all. They were looking for bread. We go into the next section in verses 27 through 30 and we see their idea about how to get that bread, which is working for it, and how Jesus says you get true bread. That's believing. Working and believing for bread. Starting back in verse 27, Jesus says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Jesus goes on out of the compassion and and grace and mercy that he has. He goes on to point them to the eternal spiritual significance of the miracle that he performed yesterday. I gave you bread, but there's, there's a greater purpose for that. And he's like, look, you went through all of this effort for what? A meal? Well, I gave you that yesterday. And look at you today. I gave you a meal yesterday, and you're here asking me for another one. It did not completely satisfy you. It just held you over for a little while. He's trying to tell them there's something greater that's available to you. There's food, he says, that lasts forever. And he says the Son of Man, and he's borrowing that. That is a messianic title. He's he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And he calls himself, the Son of Man will give that to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Or what it says is that the Father has granted the Son of Man the authority to dispense this bread. Now, when we look at the crowd, we can, we can take this approach that I think would be harmful to us. Try not to look at them from a merely external, cold-hearted mentality where you get, just get frustrated with them. Because you can. Because they don't get it. They don't get it this whole passage that we're studying. But if you can find compassion in your heart, I want you to see where they are. They are imprisoned. They are trapped. They are trapped with their Jewish belief that they have to earn salvation. That it's something that they have to do. We saw that with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is told by Jesus, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus, being as intelligent as he is and living his whole life 
following the law, teaching others the law, gets so spiritually frustrated because that is something that is outside of his control. We don't participate in our birth. I can't make myself be born again. But Jesus says that's what has to happen. With these people, they're going to experience the same thing if they'll listen to Jesus' words because he's saying, it's not something that you do. Look at their response to him. They interpret Jesus' statement through their distorted minds, and they ask the question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus tells them that the Son of Man will give eternal life, implying that it is a gift. And their response is, what must I do to earn that? This was the common misconception in the day. That one must do good to inherit eternal life. The crowd's question is similar to that of the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? The same mentality was expressed by the lawyer in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him and to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's all about their actions. And this is still the misconception today. We have a hard time accepting the fact that, that grace is something that we don't have to earn. Even for those of us who are in the church. We struggle with wrapping our minds around that. If you've been with Sulphur Community Church for some time or another Bible teaching church, you know that God's Word is explicitly clear that man can't do any work to attain salvation. If you've gone through our new members course, you'll recall how we walk through Scripture like Romans 3. And I didn't put this in the slides because I'm going to try to go through this really quickly, but I'm going to read them to you. If you want, take notes and you can go back and look at them later. Romans 3, verses 11 through 12, starting in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In verses 20, same chapter, verses 20 through 24. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through works? No. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who work? No. For all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by their works? No. They are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, same chapter. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through what? Our works? 
our efforts? No, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans, going back to Romans chapter 10, looking at verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who works, does good, no, to everyone who believes. Same chapter, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There's nothing there that says faith comes through doing good works. It's through hearing. It's by grace. You want to see that even more explicitly? Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I know our church spent a lot of time in Ephesians. So you'll be familiar with it. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved." through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. It's clear. And I'm going over this because I want to make sure you've got that in your mind. I don't want you to think that you have to do something good to earn God's favor. It is grace, a gift that you do not deserve. So if you've gone through our new members class, you've heard all that. Let me give you another one that you may not have heard in that class to help solidify that even more. This one I do have. Titus. Some of you may have never read Titus before. We're going to fix that. Titus, chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He's doing the work. He saved us, not because of works done by us, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
So we know that according to Scripture, we are saved by grace alone, displayed through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. I thought I would get an amen on that one. That's good news. That's the gospel. That it is not our own works. Because if it were our own works, we're going to hell. That's determined. And that's what we deserve. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus addresses the crown's mindset with his response to their question. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of who? They said, what must we do? And he says, this is the work of God. Belief. Stop trying to do. Belief. Believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus tells this crowd that when it comes to this bread that does not perish, it is God who does the work and man who does the believing. And then again, we see the hardness of heart. We see the disillusionment of the crowd, the inability of them to accept and trust the words of Christ. It's so apparent in their response. They basically say, prove it. Prove yourself to us. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You mean like feeding 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish? I mean, for sure this crowd knows that happened. That's why Jesus said an evil and adulterous nation seeks for a sign. These people have experienced a sign. They've seen it. They've benefited from a miracle. And they're not satisfied. Because a sign, remember, if you go all the way back to my little story, if you were here, about my Nolan Ryan little gift that I got for Christmas, I missed the gift. I missed the message that was being displayed with the gift. That's what's going on here. They are missing out. All they can see is a, new, a, a meal. Give me some more bread. And they're missing out on the spiritual significance that Jesus is trying to tell them. You keep asking for a sign. The sign was meant so that you could see me. I'm what you need. They tell Jesus to prove himself. They say, you know, you say these things. You want us to believe you. Well, give us another sign. What work are you going to do for us, Jesus? You know, I wonder if they even meant that. If they really meant, hey, give us another sign so that we can believe you. Or if they were just trying to manipulate Jesus to actually give them what they really wanted. Give us another sign. And I think that's may, that might be what they're doing. Because if you continue, as we will, you're going to see they bring up manna. It's like, hey, remember in our history, Moses gave us bread. So what are you going to give us? This week, as I was thinking about the implications of this section, I was forced to consider how I might try to manipulate God. I mean, when I go to Him in prayer, am I, am I taking the, the proper attitude, the purpose of prayer, and saying, God, 
align my heart with yours? Or am I going to him and saying, hey, I've got this wish list of things that I want. Can you align your heart with mine? Can you change to what I want? I wonder how many of us find ourselves just like this crowd. We can't see what God wants. We can't see the fact that Jesus wants them. Look, Jesus wants them to believe. He's inviting them. But that doesn't line up with their hearts. They want bread. What about you? What do your prayers say about your heart in this area? What does the lack of prayer in your life say about your heart? Do you even consider God's will at all? Just go about your day as, hey, it's all me now. I got this. The other thought I had was in regards to my feeble attempts at self-righteous, self-righteousness. You know, even though I've been saved by grace and I've been given righteousness that was not my own, and I know and believe that, sometimes I still try to step outside of that grace to prove myself worthy of that. Hey, God, let me put on a show for you so you can see that I'm worthy. That's not the gospel. That's not what we see in Scripture. I struggle with resting in the grace that God has given me. Just, I'm going to abide in the vine, as we'll see later on in John's gospel. I'm not going to step outside of that, but I'm going to abide in the vine and trust that if I do that, good fruit will come. What about you? Do you find yourself thinking the same way as the crowd? Do you find yourself struggling to believe that God's grace is sufficient for you or that you have to do something outside of that? The crowd here continues to challenge Jesus to prove himself. And in this next section, Jesus continues to to contradict them and correct them. He reveals the true giver of the true bread. Verses 31 through 33. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. As part of their challenge to Jesus, the crowd brings up this part of their history. As an example of a work or a sign that he could do. Hey, we're going to offer up a suggestion. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is why I say after reading that, I really think they were just going after the bread. I don't even think they want to see another sign. They just want to eat. They just want a sandwich or something. Of all the things that they could have brought up, right? I mean, how many things have they, has Israel experienced, the work of God? They didn't bring up the parting of the Red Sea. They didn't bring up the, the fire and condemnation that he poured out. They didn't bring up the, the burning bush. They made a point to bring up manna. They made a point to bring up, hey, we, we had bread before, so what are you going to do? 
But they make a mistake in their recollection of this part of history. And Jesus corrects them on it. They point Jesus to the fact that Moses gave us bread. And Jesus is like, whoa, you're wrong. I mean, this is one of the landmark moments, landmark works of God in their history. And they are attributing the work of God to a man. They can't even see that. We see it more clearly in Jesus' response when he corrects their memory. And I'm going to get to that. But I think another question we might need to ask ourselves is, do we do that? Do we attribute the work of God to man? God works through man, right? And that's why maybe sometimes we, it's hard to see that. But how often do we say, oh, well, so-and-so did this for me. So-and-so met my need. When really, it was God at work in the heart of that person to meet your need. Let me show you a place where that happens in Scripture. Go to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in something like Cleonian, like the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd and crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with, with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. God worked through Paul and Barnabas. And the people responded by worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And despite the fact that Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and they're crying out, no, no, you're missing the point. It's God who's done this. In fact, he's been with you this whole time. That's what we want you to see. Even with those words. They attributed the work of God to man. Do we do that? Ask yourself that question. There's another way you can do that. You can claim that for yourself. Whenever God's done a work in your heart and you manifest that and you do something, are you 
glorifying the Father or are you stealing it for yourself? Are you attributing his work to you and saying, hey, this is what I did? Something worth considering. They attributed the work of God to the work of man. And then Jesus corrects them. In his response, I identified three points of clarification or correction that Jesus makes. Let's read his response again, and then I'll go through those. Going back to verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I want you to see three things here. Obviously, I've already pointed out Moses was not the one who gave the bread from heaven. It was God. Moses was just the man through whom God dispensed that bread and gave those directions. So not Moses, not man, but God. Second correction, although God gave manna from heaven in the past, he notices present tense. He is giving true bread in the time that this was written And that is his son, the Christ. The provision of manna was just a foreshadowing of the greater bread that was to come. And while manna gave and helped support temporary life, look, all those people died. Those people who ate that manna, they they weren't around. They died out there. But what Jesus is saying is the true bread gives life eternal. Third correction, the manna was only given to Israel. But Jesus says the true bread come down from heaven gives life to who? To the world. To all peoples. Thought I would get an amen on that one too because that's us. We, We were not Israel. We are not Israel. We were the world. And this bread, this life has been given to anyone in the world who would believe in Christ. We'll look at one more back and forth in this conversation today. And I'll let, I think Blake is picking this. Are you up next week? Blake. Blake. I'm jealous of Blake. This is my, one of my favorite chapters in, chapter, uh, in John's Gospel. But we'll look at one more today. And it is here. Jesus makes this explicitly clear who the bread of life is. Verses 34 through 40, John 6. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Once Once again, the crowd doesn't get it, right? What do they respond? Hey, Jesus, give us that bread. It's like the woman at the well. You remember? When Jesus offered this living water and then she would never thirst again, she's like, oh, that would be great. 
because I've been coming to this well in the middle of the day when it's the hottest time so that I don't have to deal with all the judgment from all the other women because I've slept with a lot of guys. If you gave me that water, that would be the best. Same thing here. They're like, oh, that'd be awesome. Give us this bread always. So Jesus makes it abundantly clear in his response. He says, I am the bread of life. That I am the one whom the Father has given. I am the one who gives eternal spiritual life. I am the bread of life. This is the first of Jesus's what's known as the I am statements in John's gospel. We're going to see six more throughout this gospel. Each one of them, he uses a metaphor to communicate his glory to the people that he's talking to. We'll see Jesus say, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Those are the seven I am statements. This one, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is saying that he will completely satisfy. There will be no more wanting. It's here that we see man's responsibility in salvation. So remember, I was telling you new believers, pay attention, right? You, you need to know what's going on here. Man's responsibility in salvation is to come and believe. Not works. Belief. We've already seen that man can't do anything to inherit eternal life, that it is the work of God alone. Here we see that man must come to Jesus and believe. And this is where the crowd fell short. Jesus tells them that they've seen him and they've experienced his glory, and yet they do not believe. And that is sad. Not sad like pity. That's sad. Because you've got a huge crowd of people who are trapped. That's inexcusable disbelief. So when we read things like we read this morning, that man can't do anything to earn salvation, that salvation is dependent upon God's grace alone, so that no man may boast... And yet man must come to Jesus and believe. That might lead us to some questions. Well, who will come to Jesus and believe then? You remember what we read in Romans chapter 3? No one seeks God. No one. Not one. So how is that going to happen? If man is responsible for coming... But no one does it because naturally we are opposed to that. How does that take place? We've already seen in John's Gospel in chapter 3 that natural man doesn't come to Jesus. Look at John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. It doesn't say they liked the darkness. It doesn't say that they just existed in the darkness. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. And who does wicked things? 
No one does good. Not one. Going back to Romans 3. So, who's going to come? And how is that going to happen? John 6, Jesus indicates how that happens and who will come. What does he say? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So we've got this chain of events here, right? Can you see that? Who will come? All that the Father gives to Jesus. Think about that. For those of you who who have come to Jesus, you've been given to him by the Father. You are a gift. You've been caught up in this this relationship between the Father and his Son, where the Father desired to give his Son a precious gift. And what was that gift? It's you. It's me. It's his church. This makes sense, right? That the Father gives people to Jesus. It makes sense when you see in the, in, the, the, with, in the light of the rest of Scripture that it takes a supernatural work of God to overcome the natural tendency of man. What are we by nature? Children of wrath. Completely opposed. That's, that's our natural state. Look, fall of man, that's what happened. Genesis 3 You see, the fall of man, that has been passed on to every one of us. We are by nature children of wrath. But here, we see that a supernatural work of God can take place. And that could take place in our hearts where the Father is giving us to the Son. And so it says that for those who come, and who are those who come? Remember the chain of of events. Those who the Father gives. So those who the Father gives, come. And all those who come, they will never be cast out. Amen? That is the eternal security we have in Christ. From beginning to end, it is not us. It's not us. That's good news. Because if it was us, we wouldn't come. And if it was left to, left to us to stay there, it wouldn't happen. We would fall from grace. That doesn't happen according to Scripture. All those who the Father gives will come, and all those who come will never be cast out. Why is this? Why is that taking place? This good news of eternal security for those of us who find ourselves in Christ. Why? Why? Sometimes it's fun to ask that question. Out of praise. Why, God? Why are you keeping me? I know what I did yesterday. I know what I've done in my life. I make decisions sometimes knowing that it's, that it's not honoring to you. Why? Why do you keep me? Why do you keep me around this old bag? Jesus tells us why. He says that he's here to do the will of his Father that sent him. Verse 39 makes it clear, right? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So to continue with that chain of thought, right? All that the Father gives to Jesus will come. All who come will not be cast out. 
Why? Because the Father has willed that His Son lose nothing of all that He has given Him. And He will deliver them, raise them up on the last day. He continues with the revelation of the will of the Father and says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I hope this offers you some comfort this morning. This is good news to those of us who have believed in the good news. Not only did we not do anything to earn salvation, but we can't do anything to lose salvation. And we have done things to lose salvation. Now I stress, I want to make sure this is clear. This is for those who have believed in Jesus as the Christ the Son of God, and have surrendered their life to following Him no matter the cost. This is not people who are good, nice, try to live a good life, believe that God exists. That's not what this is. For those who have believed true saving faith, where you've not only recognized that it's true, but that you've trusted in it that it's true for you. For those who have believed, you are eternally secure. I hope that's encouraging. The all-powerful Son of God has revealed His Father's will. Lose nothing. Lose nothing of those who were given to Him and raise them up on the last day. If you grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in your faith, this is once saved, always saved. This is what you heard. If you grew up in the Presbyterian or the more Reformed tradition, this is what's called perseverance of the saints. I like to call it the gospel. If you want to be more specific, the eternal security of the believer. We can call it whatever we want, but here in Scripture what this says is, I am secure in Christ that there's nothing I can do to earn it and there's nothing I can do to lose it, praise God. Because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by the grace, kept in that grace. So Christians, we've, we've got some questions to ask ourselves this, this week. In what ways are we like the hard-hearted crowd? In our manipulative prayer lives? In our attempts at self-righteousness? Are we moved by the Spirit? Or are we moved by the flesh? Are, are we attributing the work of God to man? What about our beliefs about our eternal security? Look, I know this is something that sometimes we struggle with this. I'm trying to be comforting to you this morning because of what I see in God's Word. I know this is a struggle. We were talking about this week in group. One of the hard things about living a Christian life is the fact that now you've been given the Holy Spirit who convicts you when you do wrong. Man, before it was all good. I could do whatever I wanted. It didn't bother me. But now I do the same thing and I've got the Holy Spirit open your eyes, convicting my heart, breaking me. And that's hard. And then it makes you think, well, am I even saved to begin with? Because... I'm doing some of the same stuff I was doing when I wasn't a believer. Eternally secure. 
You didn't do anything to earn it, and you're not going to do anything to lose it. He's going to hold you. He will lose nothing of all that he has been given. Now, we can go to the flip side of that. Paul addresses this. We could see this statement of eternal security as a license to continue in sin. I'm saved by the grace of God, so I can do whatever I want. Paul would yell at you if that's what you told him. He would say, by no means. Wake up, Christian. Do not pervert the grace of God. You are saved by grace. Now live your life worthy of that gospel to which you've been given. And I'm going to give you my spirit. And he's going to help you do that. You're going to work out your faith in fear and in trembling. You're going to make mistakes, but I'm going to pick you back up and you're going to keep going. I'm going to sanctify you. You're going to be transformed into the image of my son. Do not continue in sin, but rest in the all-sufficient grace of God. For others, ask yourself, why, why do you come to Jesus? Is it for an easier life? Is it in hopes of prosperity and physical provision? Or are you coming to Him so that you might enjoy Him, the glory of our Savior? I would plead with you to come to Jesus and believe, for that is all you can do for salvation. Partake of the bread of life, and He will satisfy you eternally. Let's pray.